So Miguel, how do you like the place? Have you been down to the lake yet? No, not yet. Ah. No. Okay. But so far, it's, it's very nice. I've been to uh, Ajahn Power Skuti. Okay. Yeah. Have you seen the beaver pond? I think my Kuti. Which nice Kuti? kuti. Where's your Kuti? Oh. Zip. It's a great one, very well insulated one. For Mexicans. <laughs> good, good, nice to have you here. So what can we talk about? Anyone have any things that we could talk about? Things or is about? I have a question about um, what the Buddha said about rebirth. Uh-huh. Um, so in the Theravadan teachings, did he say anything about how long it takes to get into a new body, like how these things work? It's all commentarial. Yeah, so they're, like we don't have a bardo type teaching that the Tibetans have. So there's all kinds of speculation, but I think there are instances of instant rebirth in circumstances, but, but basically it's one of those questions that he would say is probably unprofitable because it would just lead to more speculation. So the question really is what conditions a good rebirth and what is the possibility of the end of the cycle? Those, those two questions would be more paramount. Well, why do you ask? Did someone die close to you? or? Um, yeah, a while back and I wondered about that. Um, like where they'll show up again, that kind of thing? That's what they call the bardo. Okay. But the Tibetans are only the only school in Buddhism that actually talk about changing the modes of consciousness after after de after the death of the body. The Chinese don't. The um, none of the other schools do. So I wonder if some of that comes from their Bon religion, the original animistic religion which was there was then overlaid by uh, a very late form of Buddhism which had developed from Tantra in Bengal. So by the time Buddhism reached Tibet, I think it was a thousand years after or fifteen hundred years after the passing of the Buddha, so that a lot of the, um, the competition between Brahmanism and Buddhism always changed both of them. And so all the tantric practices that you hear about in, in Tibet were actually from Bengal. Amra Siri, our, our Samanera, he was telling me that he he practiced them all as a Brahmin priest. He tried you know, some of the uh, tantric practices. So what, what we, he, we have are the old texts and, and they're very bare on those kinds of things. I think, to a great extent, just to get the mind away from its tendency to always analyze and speculate and try to have an answer around things which are bigger than us, maybe. So you get that idea that the, of the imponderables, 
of, of things which are too big for our intellect, which I think is a good, it's a humbling idea. Right? And then, and then the, because the mind, uh, doubt is one of the big hindrances we have in, in, in Buddhism and in our minds. And part of it is just the doubt as a, one of the hindrances in meditation, but also doubt comes up in what, as one of the three fetters. Um, personality belief, um, superstition or, or belief in rites and rituals, and doubt are the three which prevent one being in the stream of Dharma. And personality belief is that strong sense of I am this body, I am this person moving through time, this is my history, as opposed to seeing this objectively. And then Siddhabhata Paramasa, or superstition, or, or belief in rites and rituals, is quite often the, the way Ajahn Sumedha likes to explain that, is the cultural attachments we have. What a woman be, what a man should be, uh, uh, all the different variations on that. And then doubt is the... I think it's the overestimation of what thought can bring you and a question can bring you and and that the liberation of the mind is not a conclusion like an intellectual conclusion like an answer mm -hmm. but it's more the freedom from needing conclusions to some extent needing to have an intellectual answer so uh, <coughs> in that sense you have the you know the use of doubt in in the uh, Chinese and the Advaita traditions, where you use a doubt to bring the mind to clarity, but you don't try to answer it. Who am I? Well, when is the future? These unanswerable questions. And they make the mind very bright, but it's hard to sustain them you know, for, for long periods of time. Yeah? Is there anything about rebirth or the cosmology that the Buddha said with certainty? Um, there is a very, uh, there is a strong cosmology coming from the Buddhist social milieu, and actually Ajahn Punadhamma has just published the e-book of that. There's very, very few English sources available of that, so if you'd like that, um, if you email the office, uh, we have the link to it. He just put up the link last week. So it's all about ghosts and goblins. And asuras and, and, and all of that. So um, you can have a look at that. You you have you have texts which are later texts which talk about if you're uh, like if you're if you lie you'll be ugly that kind of tit for tat. But those I I find it I I, th I think they're later commentarial too simplistic really. Um, but certainly in the, in the suttas, the, the Buddha will be asked, like the sutta to Bahia, who is the quickest to gain enlightenment. And he gains teaching from the Buddha before alms round, and he's dead at the end of alms round. A, a cow gores him, and the monks ask, what should we do with Bahia's body? And the Buddha says, venerate it, because he realized the end of rebirth. So there, there's things like that. Um, yeah, so there is some talk about actually figuring out the exact reasons why we're here now in, in these bodies, in this situation with these friendships, 
is so complex it would, you know, would drive a person crazy. So the Buddha said it's one of the imponderables. So you, the, the emphasis is more on on that. Like right now, I can I can create causes for peace in the future. What results come to me from different angles, biological angles, psychological angles, historical angles, karmic angles? Um, that's very complex. But I know for sure now I can I can make causes for peace in the future. So you, you work more with that, and then the mystery of of a lot of that. Having said that, we have monks in Thailand who have psychic abilities. And I'm not one, and I'm not in Thailand. But monks go to them and say, "So where did Bhante so and so get reborn?" And apparently they give answers. Um, but I've never, I've never asked that kind of question. So there's a there's a whole subset of monks in in Wapapong who are are sort of more engaged in the kind of psychic side and and powers and and. Uh, modes of rebirth, but Ajahn Chah and Wampo Liam, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go there. They just would. Wampo Liam just won't answer. It's interesting if you, if you ask him a question which he thinks is unimportant, he would even say, "I'm not going to give you an answer. He just look at you," <laughs> which is great. Uh, it was Wampo Chah probably. Yeah. It's, it's unimportant. And why do you ask? <coughs> because uh, I had a test result about 10 weeks ago, or two weeks ago, not thinking about death, and that being a false result. But um, I just realized that after all my practice, I'm still surprised and So you're surprised at your reaction? I'm surprised at my reaction, yeah. But isn't it natural to have that reaction? You know, you know, if you get if you get heavy. So explain again what happened. I didn't quite catch that. Well, anyway, yeah. the 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 diagnosis was a negative. Yeah. Okay, but it was a it was a false positive. Kind of thing. Yeah. So for about ten days, I thought that I had a serious illness. Yeah. Okay. So and that freaked you out. The first day it did. The first day it did. I was very upset. Yeah. Um, and um, and then I was surprised that I was so upset after so much practice and so many. Um, and the next day. And. Um, I spoke with Ayah Medanambi about it, I phoned Timisaro about it, and I got some um, practice advice, and essentially what worked um, was just tapping into uh, what makes me feel content in the present moment, and I experienced a lot of joy those 10 days. <laughs> so what was the problem? Like, wh why did you think that the reaction shouldn't have been like that? Well, 
You, th you thought you wouldn't react? Or? I had, so I had three cancer diagnoses, all prognosis fine over three years. Ah. And, you know, been through four surgeries, chemotherapy, etc. Oh, ah, okay. And I thought that um, I had done a lot of practice. And so then when I got this test result that said that the cancer had recurred, I couldn't believe how, how you surprised reacted. I was. Right. And angry and upset. Right. But I think what I think what you did was fine, no? Because you, do you really want to make it an issue? Because because is it really an issue? You're, you I mean, this is just, you know for me the the fact that you you got this diagnosis and you were shocked by it and then you entered into joy. It seems a pretty you're pretty strong. You didn't kind of lose the plot, right? So. I think what you're doing is, is, is keep doing that maybe, rather than making it some kind of problem that I, I'm someone who's got a death problem, right? Because right? then that, that gets you into kind of the sakaiditi, whereas awareness of shock takes you through it. You know, you, you have the shock and you ride it out and there you are, you, you know? So personally, I think you great and and I would I would be wary of then you know making it like I've got a I've got a problem because I don't think you do you, you you I think it's just natural to be shocked by that kind of diagnosis because we you have <coughs> expectations which you don't see right and those expectations are, are revealed by these kinds of things but I think each time you 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 admit to it you make it conscious you're more in the center of the equanimity. So the, 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 uh, the practice of, of gaining more strength and equanimity comes from shocks and disappointments, right? It doesn't come without those. So, so, um, but if you, if you want to do death meditations, then um, it, it's quite hard to make it for most people, to make it realistic, so it can it can become a kind of uh, intellectual exercise, right? Um, or it can it can turn to aversion too. It doesn't necessarily lead to peace. You want to be careful of that too. So my only experience of like death meditation was going to autopsies. You probably get you know you get arrested if you go to autopsies, here. <laughs> but I used to go to autopsies as if I was in Bangkok on a Monday morning after the weekend slaughter on the streets, and and you know I would just it would hit me really hard and I just stare at it, and then the the repulsion of it because it's quite repelling right the dead body, I just look at it and then the mind would come to more peace. And then when I went outside in the marketplace, I noticed the mind was quite peaceful. It wasn't kind of grabbed by all the things in the marketplace. So it did have its effect. But I, I found that the formal, uh, myself, uh, Asuba meditations, it, it brought me too much aversion. And I needed to go more to, 
to the feelings of, of, of loving humanity and getting to Upeka in another way through, you know, through the trials and tribulations of, of ordinary life. So I never found a Suba really worked for me. So you have to find someone who's actually used it consistently and for a long time and, and you see the dangers. I guess through books or did Tani Sri has he done it a lot or Asuba or um, well um, just suggested that I uh, just remind myself that I'm going to die and that when I do that um, notice why I don't want to die and so then it just becomes um, interesting you see what I see what I'm attached to where is your real home? I don't know. I mean, spiritually. Well, in the present moment. Mm. That's how it feels. Yeah, but I mean, the present moment is full of stuff. Is it stuff? Okay, and what do you call that? <laughs> How about awareness? Would that work? Anyway, that, that's the way I talk about my real home, awareness itself. And so if, if, if awareness is my real home, or that corner in your, you know, whatever way you describe that, and I see that that home contains all, all the furniture and elements and families, all things, that it's space and consciousness. And I take that as the reference point for dying. Then even if I feel frightened by death or shocked by it or whatever, my return should be one to awareness itself rather than the objects of awareness. So the objects of awareness are shocking or boring, sweet or sour, uh, and so on. Uh, emotional, uh, physical, memory and all that, they're the objects of awareness. But awareness itself has no quality, correct? You can't say that awareness is hot or cold, or made or familiar, but awareness knows. So there's the knowing, or the awareness, or presence, presence, um, which is ineffable. And there was something about you getting that, that diagnosis that knew how to return to that, right? Because you were joyous. You didn't go into a, you know, whatever. So something about that, you, your practice is very, very good and very strong. So if, if, if death then, the contemplation of death, rather than thinking about the body disintegrating, what if you were to think about, well, what doesn't change? What isn't born, what doesn't die? Which is more looking at the Buddha's teachings on the unconditioned, the uncreated, the deathless. So the reason the Buddha teaches uh, contemplation of death is not so that we are just equanimous when we drop dead into some kind of black nether consciousness or something, is so that we realize the unconditioned. Hmm? 
uh, or the deathless. So if you take that way of, of reflection, so uh, what is it that isn't born doesn't die? What is unconditioned? What didn't begin and didn't end? And you start to do that like, like I do it a lot with um, uh, sense bases. So like I'll say, um, I'll feel the, the, the coolness of the fan and then I'll hear the lawnmower outside. And I'll say, okay, that's changing. It doesn't change. Awareness. And, 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 and if you play around with that, you start to get a sense of what your real home is. And then the other one I use a lot is that this experience is in awareness. I find that really, really interesting. It's not something you figure out, you can only kind of be that. So they, they like the experience of spatiality and sound. Sure, I'm here, you're there. But also that I'm here, you're there is in awareness. So my sense of preparation for death is not the contemplation of death, but it's the contemplation of the deathless. Much more fun. <laughs> Maybe I'll blow it, I don't know. but. I think it's a valid way because the, the, the Buddha offered that. So then, then if you do get shocked and your practice leading to death has been shock is in awareness and your mind always opens to, the, to your real home, then it's not a problem. It's just shock and the, and, and, and the emotional, psychological reaction to shock, which is fine. So like, let's say, um, I feel uh, upset about something in the monastery. Fine. Upset is this way, it's in awareness. And then, then it goes. But if I think I've got an issue of upsetness, right, and I've been a monk for 45 years and I'm still upset, oh God, I should do more metta bhavana, and I have so much anger. <laughs> and yet if I just say, oh, you're just upset, very dumb, well, that's all. It's in awareness. So it's a kind of beautiful, relaxing, opening practice which you can do constantly and it's very subtle because it's not like changing uh, like tasting salt and then tasting sugar where you get a sense experience it's not a sense experience it's the space that contains that right Does that make sense it does. yeah it's a lot of food for exercise. <laughs> so i do i i always teach that way so you listen to sound feel your body What's changing? What's unchanging? And you still get a sense of that. But you, you know, rather than you re, than read it, uh, rather than leave it as a theory, you, you got to try it out and get the intuition around it. I find it works. And then, you know, I'll probably die before you, so I'll send you a rainbow or something and tell you how. It <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, right? <laughs> but that you know, your question about how rebirth works, why that's, why I don't usually give much of an answer because I'm not interested in rebirth. I'm interested in the unconditioned. That's my, that's why I kind of you know, ordained as a monk, right? That realization. So it's, so when monks talk about how you know beings get reborn and so on and so forth, I totally believe it, but I, I, I don't have the interest. But when they talk about a monk, like Lampaliam, say where his silence is so profound. And have you read 
um, no worries. No worries, it'll be online. And at Lompoliem is the abbot of Wat Bapo, I don't know if you know. So he's the successor, uh, successor abbot to Ajahn Chah. And he's quite <coughs> very accomplished in his own right. And in that, no worries, he has, uh, he describes his own experience of enlightenment. And that's inspiring, you know, the kind of deep silence and, and stillness that he experiences. You might have a, have a look at that. <laughs> Anyone else on any? Mikhail? Um, so, walking with this uh, body and mind, of mine, and there's, there's the challenges, and uh, like everybody else, and I figured for myself the, the long-term plan, what, what, what will be benefit for now is uh, to do good. Um, and my question is, uh, um, how to do, what to do, um, I have, now I have a more practical, if, if, if the, the question, if you, if you want to answer this, like more practical, I have time until February in the US. Um, yeah, I wonder how should I spend it, this time or, um, um, I, I don't know, just to release some tension for myself. What? Um, why did you? Why did you come traveling? I I just finished the army and then they I got a, a, a cut shortcut from the army because I volunteered through the Jewish agency in a summer camp. So I found myself in New York. Oh, yeah. <coughs> they sent me there. Yeah, they sent me there. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, so you just happen to be here. Yeah. And then February you start work? No, I just, the visa ended. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and I need to go back. And then will you have work or you start to look for work or? No, I think I'll be going to Thailand. And, uh, oh. Practice, uh, well, do you like adventure or do you like meditation or do you like both? I got, I got tired. Actually. Of adventure. Okay, that's good. Eliminate that one. <laughs> so, um, do you want to do retreats or live in community? I think uh, it's, it's too much uh, inside myself. It's too much for me. Uh, to just do retreats? Or yeah, it's too much. Uh, then go to communities. And communities at work. And that's like we have, we have quite a work scene here. And uh, it's very human. Where you're relating with people, and where you're relating with people and hearing some dharma, doing some meditation, getting a, a good grounding in sila. So w- when you live in a community like this, it's nothing special, but you you build up a a set of va- values just by noticing the values we have here. You calm the mind down very naturally because you're not exciting it. Uh, you get start to get the in- insights about your own attachments and so on, and it gives you a good foundation for whatever you do. But it's very, uh, it's like it's very ordinary. It's not, it's not trying to 
create any great states of mind, or it's just ordinary strengthening of mindfulness, building up a bar of meat. Whereas a retreat is, you know, it's more focused and has, has a kind of different, um, more geared to samadhi and calm and so on. So stay here to February. <laughs> or wherever. I mean, temple's interesting. Yeah, well, I, I know. I know the monasteries from our place. They're all good. Temple, uh, Abhaygiri, and then there's such a uh, Dick in Virginia. He's very, <coughs> very good monk, and Bhante um, in this place in West Virginia. Yeah. And it doesn't cost anything to stay in those places. Yeah, I think this is. I'm leading myself to this kind of. Yeah. As much as I can, but also like being here, it's it's kind of hard for me myself. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, I think it's yeah. just enough hardness to get you, just enough friction to get you enlightened. <laughs> yeah, I know. Of course, it's it's for the benefit of myself. Yeah. It's not. Uh, I know. If you, you know, like this kind of a place, if you're restless, you have nowhere to. Let that restlessness go. So you're just developing more and more objective awareness around various defilements, and you don't even realize it sometimes. But you, you, you know, just by the whole pra- the whole life of non-distraction and not having uh, the avenues of choice that we usually have. Just the fact that you can't choose to have. Sandwich in the afternoon, or watch Netflix. You know what people do. Um, forces you just to look at the mind, but not in a in a forced way. Actually, you know, it's not 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 too heavy. So renunciation, like simplification, shows you a lot about yourself. Whereas complexity, usually you just either you're surviving it or you're absorbed into it, and you, you don't oftentimes uh, understand. Because the world just compels you to do this and do that. So that's one of the theories of monasticism. This is simplification, and then and then also you're serving, you're practicing dana. You know, you're helping with the work and relating with the monk, and all of that. It's very, very uh, good for the heart in in ways which are, I think, surprising. Yeah? They're not they're not so conscious. But then I'm a monk. What else would I say? <laughs> it's terrible. Don't go. Don't go to monastery. <laughs> I'm sold on it, so I'm. <laughs> that, that's the theory. <laughs> Gabrielle, any questions? No. Andrew, any questions? You could think of one. Yeah. Um, so I think almost all of the most helpful advice that meditation teachers have given me has been some form of relax. Okay. And that will probably tell you a lot about me. Okay. Um, and it seems fitting for a few years before I started doing um, short retreats my basic attitude was try to get enlightened tomorrow. Okay. Or maybe tonight after puja. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm taking this into account 
and relaxation, attentive relaxation is first mm -hmm. in my practice. But usually on shorter retreats, like seven or ten days, what happens is that I relax and then I become sort of casual. Casual being? Meaning um, not relaxed but not persistent enough to really keep cultivating awareness. So what happens to your mind when you're too relaxing? Um, your mind starts to think or fantasize? Or? It's, it's, it becomes complacent and then doesn't sort of catch the kinds of thoughts that are like, you know, it would be really relaxing right now and that, and I don't really need it. Just sort of, the awareness sort of becomes complacent and dips off. Um, where does it dip off to? To fantasy or um, worry or? A lot of worry and complaining mind. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, but if you're more, shall we say, more fierce, mm -hmm. then what happens? Awareness picks up again and I become more tense again. Mm -hmm. So finding the middle of that. Well, it's common predicament how to, how to get the right balance. Good question. It seems to me you have to always bring the mind to the awake state first. Mm -hmm. That might sound not you know might not sound like much, but quite often you can be reactive to a thought pattern that you notice happening and trying to become awake or trying not to have the thought. So right in the moment of awakening, you switch over to tanha rather than presence, mm -hmm. right? So that mechanism I, I saw myself. I think we all have where. You, you, you know, you, you're observing how the mind works and then you're, you're fantasizing about something, there it is, and then you try. And that's the moment of, of wrong effort. The moment of right effort would be, oh, uh, worry, you know, like a labeling it, and, and getting to the place, so yeah, it's suchness, it's like this. Well, you're not trying to get anywhere, but you know the present moment. And, 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 and that might not sound like much, but if you don't have that moment, the next moment can't possibly be right. It has to. It, it has to come from right understanding, and right view. Say right understanding. Right understanding is like not just intellectual. It's understanding that this moment is like this, and, and there's no words to it. And getting to that, and trusting that, and then it'll be the second moment, and then you pick up the breath. Say, but if you don't get to that then you're always in a kind of reactive mode, trying to control, or trying to get rid of, or trying to become. And, and that's very frustrating, because you're putting effort forth, but you're never coming from the awake mind. So, um, I, would, I would suggest exploring the end of thought. When, when, you're, when you're walking around, you're meditating, and some thought pattern comes up, at some point, usually it's sound or, or pain, interrupts the thought pattern. So someone coughs or you have a twinge in the knee or something like that. And all of a sudden you realize that you've been thinking. Now that moment is the awake mind. And that's the moment where you just have to do nothing. And just reckon, oh, awakeness is this way. Oh yeah, okay, good fan. 
right understanding. Then from that you say, okay, uh, maybe you'll notice that the pattern of thinking is worry. So you can say, okay, the pattern is worry. And if you make that intention, I'm going to try to see where worry arises or where it ends, and just wait. I'll get caught up in it again. That intention to look at worry will help you to, to be more attentive to worry, rather than trying to get rid of it by controlling this present moment and focus. So if you're trying to like focus on something and hold it so you don't think, you can't do that for long. You get cramped. Right? It doesn't work. But if you make the intention to try to, to see the scenarios, in this case, worry or thought or whatever, uh, and, and, and then the awareness becomes stronger. And also if you just make the suggestion presence rather than no thought, just presence, just that, just like, because you can always do that, presence, like this. And that's a very relaxed state, but it's so ordinary that people, they, they miss it, and they're off trying to get whatever they want to do. So I would suggest it's really understanding the awake mind is you're already there, because that's the pain of non-desire, it's a place of non-self, non-ego, and how do you expand that moment to two moments, three moments, three moments, rather than trying to get some altered state of consciousness that you don't even know about, you've read about, you, you know, you set up your mind and got some kind of pattern. And then from that, certainly you can, you can develop um, samadhi or whatever, whatever gifts you have, but first you have to get to that, because that's the place of non-desire and non-self. So work, work, I would say, you know, I suggest really get, just do it in nature. Just stop and, and say, okay, the moment is like this. Without thought, without analysis, it's like this. And, and get, to, get a sense of the clarity and silence behind that. As I was there. And then you'll see the compulsions more, I think. But keep at it, these habits. Um, <coughs> And who know? Like I, I, I tried so hard. I had a seizure. I was, I was just, I was, wasn't sleeping. I was doing all night practice. And it was just fierce, fierce was crazy. And there, there was a, uh, I was at a monastery. I usually had five monks, and Ajahn Chah came for the dana that day. With like twenty monks and two hundred lay people, there are usually about ten lay people. So the. Uh, this whole sala is full of people, and I'm the I was the last summoner in the line. And we finished the um, Anamotana chanting. We received the alms. We'd done alms round. Hadn't been sleeping for days and days and days, pushing myself. And uh, I don't remember this, but I had a seizure, and I put my head my my head flipped. I felt like a, a grandma seizure. It wasn't grandma seizure. It was just from lack of sleep. My head flicked back, and there were these louvered windows behind me, and you know how these like louvered windows that open like that. Cut my head open. <laughs> then I fell down in front, and then Ajahn Pabagro jumped down and put uh, the, uh, the the strap that we have for alms balls in my mouth, so I wouldn't uh, bite my tongue off. So, I mean, I I, I lost. I, Somehow I finished my meal. I just probably said, I'm all right, I'm all right. And the head's full of blood. So then I kind of came around and I was washing my bowl. And that's where my memory starts. So there's this gap, no memory. So then they, they, uh, 
And they put something on my head, I can't remember. It was 44 years ago. <laughs> and uh, so then we went to, uh, uh, I'm not sure, it was the town, and there was a little clinic there, but they didn't have any, any real equipment, so they only had needles for doing veterinarian stuff. <laughs> so, so then they held me down. I went, no, no anesthesia. And they put a few stitches in my head. God, was that painful? <laughs> so I kind of, I walk out of, out of this, this I'm like a punch drunk. Oh, what's going on? <laughs> I walk to the, what was his name? Seng Chai was the guy that he owned a, 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 an SO gas station and sold cars. It was a big supporter. And there's Ajahn Chah sitting in a chair drinking a Pepsi. <laughs> and I walk up to him and he says to me, take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know the problem. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> True story. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's like, in spite of yourself, right? You just you just get driven by these energies, and then you have seizures, <laughs> and then you mellow out. You become an old monk, and then the young monks think you're lazy. <laughs> Wait. <clears throat> Contemplate like what right understanding is, rather than just being intellectual. Mm. See that when I know this moment, I understand this moment, not in a conceptual way, but I know it as an experience, and that's Dharma. This is Dharma. And then I add to it my own desires or worries or fears, and it gets all very complicated. It's very simple, but our, our minds are very complex. After a few years, you have some good stories. <laughs> Motorbike stories. <laughs> it always comes back to that. So Ajahn Suchita will be here tomorrow. That'll be lovely. Some teaching. When, when is he coming? They'll arrive, I should think, around 6 in the evening tomorrow. Mm-hmm. They're driving. It's a 10-hour drive. Be great. You're doing it in one day? I'm sorry? They're doing it in one day? Yeah, we usually do it in one day. Yeah, it's not too difficult. Get out, get out, get away after breakfast. <coughs> Go back and forth quite a bit. Anything else for you? Cover it all? Do you recall the uh, question you asked during our drive? Is awareness in the body or is the body in yeah. awareness? Mm-hmm. So, 
that has stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Good question. Uh, and where I'm at with it right now is I think the answer is yes. To both. <laughs> and what I, where, what I think at the moment is that the body is an awareness, uh-huh. but awareness is a passenger in the body, or this body. Yeah, it's individuated. Yeah, you could, you could say that. Because that's the only way um, the sense experience can take place. But is awareness, is the sense experience necessary for awareness? And I would say no. Right? And, I would agree. Yeah, so that'll be the question at death. Or deep sleep. Mm. Deep sleep, right? <laughs> uh, so, but if you if you change that percep, you know, if you change the perception that uh, I am, my awareness is in the body and my mind. So you change it, you start to get a different possibility percolating through an like an intuitive process, which I think would serve you well in dying. Whereas if if the identity is with the conditions of emotions or body, then you're just so wound up with that, you forget the space of awareness. And then one thing conditions another thing, conditions another thing, in some way there's, there's a, uh, you know, a recycling of all this stuff. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, like, like and, I, and I'm confident that all of us are living good lives, that whatever way we get recycled or whatever gets recycled, it'll be okay. But it'll still be disappointing. <laughs> you know, the, uh, a joke. <laughs> it'll still be oh, not again. <laughs> so, like, like <laughs> the way Buddhism gets taught in, say, in Sri Lanka and Thailand is for good rebirth, and that's a valid way of talking about it. So, being moral and and uh, being generous and and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm sure that I mean, that's part of the teaching. But personally, I think we've got, we've, we've got this interesting capacity of reflection. Like we, you know, all of us in this room, we, we know how to reflect. We know how to be angry, but we also know how to be aware of anger. And I, I think that's a huge gift that we have for some reason. A lot of people aren't reflective. They're just angry. And whoever they're angry at is wrong. So, there you go. But we have this reflective capacity. So I think we have a potential to maybe go more deeply into the Buddhist teaching rather than just a good rebirth. But having said that, living morally, living a good life, I think the other will take care of itself. You know, I, think, I think we're covered on both, both ways. But to me, the more interesting thing is that language, the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unborn, the deathless, that that language uh, really uh, is part of my my curiosity and it seems to me that's what awareness must be but awareness really seems time bound in this body and so on in the sense of, it seems like a sense experience that's why I like to do that like listen to sound feel your body okay that's the sense experience that's changing but did awareness change and once you play with that you, 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 you then it's not it's not theoretical you begin, oh yeah, okay, I can perceive life in a different way. And that to me is like what letting go is about. It, it doesn't mean dismissing, it's like just not taking, the, not, not being so concerned with the content. 
but being more interested in the container as a, you know as an analogy. So you have all these um, different, like in a in a page you have the print, and we notice the print, but we don't. Oftentimes we don't notice the white of the page. We get those analogies. Or you have like you have vases of flowers. You're always changing the flowers. And every now and then you realize, oh, that could be the vase. You know, that's what I talked about. And there's different analogies for the same thing. Because you can't really, it's hard to put it into words. I've been doing some art classes. And uh-huh. the, the focus is not so much on the thing, but the space around it. The space around it. Artists are very good at that. Yeah. Yeah. And I just some other teachers a lot of that. Like you'll say, uh, if, if, if you get to see the objects in this room, fine. Carpet, color, people, duh. But to notice the space, what do you have to do? You have to take your attention away from objects. And that's when I say this is in awareness. So you're taking your attention away from the pain or the emotion or the heat or whatever. It's in awareness. And you keep doing that. And then you are that conscious space, as it were. Not as a self-identity, but as a presence, I guess. The thing that makes sense to me. And that, that fits the, the classic um, philosophical um, dial, like two ways of talking about it, is imminent and transcendent. So imminent means it's always here and now, and awareness is always here and now. And transcendent means it doesn't partake of the different time-bound elements like heat or cold or masculinity or femininity or young or old. And awareness fits both of those, human transcendent. Yeah, and once you do that, it stops all questions. <laughs> what can you say? Because then, then if you if you get that, then you you're you start. I think you start to use the intellect much more skillfully rather than the intellect using you as it were. Because you realize the intellect is very limited. You can still use it, but you don't look for you don't look for that spiritual home through thought. Because you realize thought is an object. Whereas before that, if you if you if we're very um, conditioned by intellectual pursuits, which we are, because we're highly educated. You're always trying to figure stuff out, and and, and it's very limited. Some of it just doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. We and we ask ourselves questions and think we have to have an answer. <laughs> we set ourselves up like endless PhDs. <laughs> I'm in trouble then. <laughs> But if you're taking that, then intellect is great. You can use it to design furniture or make a meal or... And amuse yourself. Yeah, and for other people, yeah, that's interesting.